Tonight I'd like to talk about insight and for several different reasons I'd like to talk about insight. One of those reasons is that this practice that we do is called an insight or vipassana practice. Secondly, we, we do talk a lot about deepening and understanding, uh, deepening and insight. And thirdly, I'd like to talk about insight because I feel that this is often felt to be something of a mystery to people. If you came to a group meeting or an interview and you were asked to um, talk about the insights you'd had today. For many people, this would be really kind of a puzzle, even a challenge, you know. Uh, How do you know if you've had an insight? What does one look like? You know, how do you know if it's a real insight or if it's just a sort of insight? How do you know if it's the kind of insight you're supposed to be having? Because although we often, we do talk a lot about insight, we often then just sort of leave it there. You know, we don't spell out so much in this style of teaching exactly what kind of insights we would like you to have. In some ways, the practice would be a lot easier if we said to you, you know, these are the insights we would like you to have, now would you please have them, and then we'll all know that we're doing the right thing. But we don't do that, so I think often the path feels a little gray. Am I doing it right? You know, if you sit for a week, as we've been sitting, and you haven't really had any earth-shattering revelations, Sometimes, you know, there's a little doubt that arises, you know, well, maybe I'm not doing it right. Or you go to a group meeting and somebody else talks about their insights and you sort of sit there too embarrassed to ask, you know, well, how did you get it? Mm -hmm. You know, how did you actually get that? And then it's often a bit of a a puzzle. Firstly, I think in talking about insight, it is useful to some extent to talk about expectations in meditation. Of course we hear all the time that it is not useful to have any expectations in meditation. And, you know, even if you do have them, which most people do have, they don't talk about them publicly because it's considered to be a kind of more serious type spiritual sin to have expectations. So if we do have them, we do tend to keep a little quiet about what expectations we do have. Um, But I feel that this can be too, in some ways, almost too dismissive because clearly we don't come to meditation in order to stay the same. I don't think anybody would be happy to leave a retreat after 20 days 
feeling that absolutely nothing had changed. We don't also come to a retreat just in order to become more intimately acquainted with the records and the stories that we already know so well. There is, I think, certain expectations of change that people do have in meditation, and personally I think this is quite valid. I mean, there are expectations we know which are not useful, expectations which are based on uh, self-denial or rejection, expectations which are based upon fantasies or idealism, expectations which are based upon um, demands and shoulds, Uh, expectations which are based upon aversion for how we are or how things are. These expectations, quite frankly, take us nowhere but into trouble. But there is another level, and perhaps expectation may not even be the correct word here, but there is another level within ourselves, certainly, which is seeking for something. And without that kind of quest or that seeking, you know, we would have better things to do with our vacations than sit here. You know, there is a quest, there is a seeking, and I think perhaps the more accurate word to use rather than expectation is some sense of vision. Now, to me, this is more than valid in this it is actually really necessary you know that if we don't have any real sense of vision inwardly of what is important for us to nourish what we seek for what we would like to understand if we don't have that sense of vision one of two probably other things but there are two things that can happen One of them is that we tend just to adopt somebody else's belief system because we really don't have any uh, reflected upon sense of inner direction. And the other thing that can happen if we really don't have any sense of vision is that we tend to settle for too little. And I think this is, you know, although high expectation in meditation is not useful, (coughs) It is also, I think, a great tragedy to settle for too little, to think that, you know, this path is just about having a more orderly mind or having a quieter mind or having a, you know, somewhat less tension or things like that or less thoughts, you know. I think without vision, actually, we do, we can easily become have too limited a sense of, of direction in our own practice and, you know, a kind of resignation which settles for fairly limited boundaries rather than a real openness to horizons. And of course, when the vision is, is too little, then I think the actual practice is experienced on a moment-to-moment level as being somewhat less than vital. You know, it tends to be more of a kind of drifting, you know, and and actually you can be a fantastic yogi. Um, You know, you can do everything right, 
But inwardly, I think often it feels kind of um, like a plateau, like really not much shift. Yeah, I think what vision actually does for us, and and this is something different than 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 uh, unrealistic expectations, because unrealistic expectations keep um, kind of pushing us to move towards the next moment, the future, how things should be. But I think vision actually inspires an enormous amount of energy to be present, to go deeply, to penetrate deeply into this moment. And vision, one of the effects of vision clearly is energy, vitality, life, a sense of inner life and inner exploration. And of course, vision is not um, a magical benediction. It's not like any of us are necessarily born with, you know, some fantastic sense of, you know, vision. Vision comes through reflection. Vision comes through a refusal to accept the limited. Refuse, uh, sometimes just a refusal to accept the unacceptable. If we define the unacceptable as being unawake, as being unaware. So vision, I think, is important. Now vision, I think, is is something then that needs to be translated into understanding. Obviously, if vision is never realized, again, it can become a world of you know, fantastic and grand ideas that can feel very separate from our life. Vision leads us to anticipate bringing about some changes through the vehicle of meditation. The movement from confusion to clarity, the movement from disharmony to harmony, the movement from dullness to wakefulness, the movement from uh, doubt to trust, the movement from conflict to peace, the movement from ignorance to wisdom. These are all perfectly valid movements to seek for in the practice. And we all know that the meditation, although it is the vehicle, perhaps the form or the vehicle for bringing about these changes, it is not just the meditation alone, because we all know that we can be very mecha- as mechanical in meditation as we can be in anything else. So it is more than the actual meditation, it is insight. It is understanding for which meditation is the vehicle, just as insight is the vehicle for transformation. Now, when we seek to bring about these changes, often in our lives, a lot of us have gone through a part of our lives where we've tried to find these changes and transformations through fixing up our world, through having the ideal lifestyle, the ideal relationship, the ideal job, uh, you know, the ideal number of possessions, and most of us have done that part of our lives. You know, we've learned the lessons we needed to learn, and it's probably not as interesting as it may once have been, because we realize that outer change clearly does not necessarily bring about inner change, that outer change can simply be modification 
and that also we can keep rearranging the furniture, the backdrops in our lives, but keep dancing the same patterns inwardly. So then, after moving through that process or that period of learning in our lives, most of us do turn our attention inwardly, looking for the keys to bring about that which we seek for. And vision is present in our lives for most of a very young age. We just haven't learned to call it that. But we keep coming back to looking for ways, looking for means to bring to fruition that which we consider to be important and valuable. So, eventually we end up here. At some point we end up doing this. Not necessarily in order to become an expert meditator, not in order to become a Buddhist, not in order to have a different belief system, but acknowledging that insight has certain or is encouraged by certain foundations, but silence, aloneness, stillness, clarity, seeing, presence, that all of these really do have to do with insight, with understanding. But sometimes I think we then at times have unrealistic notions about insight. You know, sometimes I think that we might expect that it's going to be somehow magical or always dramatic, that if we don't have a dramatic insight, it's probably not a useful insight, is the way that some people think. Because, of course, we've all, you know, read the stories, read the books, and listened to the stories about everybody else's grand awakenings. And, you know, it seems that, you know, if we hang out long enough, perhaps we will have one ourselves, you know, under our our own personal Bodhi tree experience. (laughs) This is not necessarily the case. Sometimes it is, but not necessarily. I'd like to talk about what actually, on a specific level, what insights can unfold through this practice and the ways in which this practice is directed towards developing certain areas of insight. Now one area of insight that this practice is concerned with is the area of personal insight. Not as a way of becoming a perfect human being not as a way of achieving some kind of personal perfection, nor is the whole area of personal insight interested necessarily with any ideas of purification or a progressive purification that we're intent on getting rid of what we call negative and becoming better and becoming improved and becoming purer or more saintly or whatever. The practice is not concerned with that kind of direction, but I think it does acknowledge the relevance and the need for personal insight, for understanding ourselves, for understanding what moves us. You know, there are schools of thought in meditation, of course, that really consider that to be a rather lesser path, you know, 
a lesser vehicle that personal insights should, should be something that you deal with in therapy um, or that you should just ignore perhaps you know that it really doesn't matter and of course some people you know really take this very hardline stance you know that they have transcended themselves um, <laughs> you know maybe this is possible maybe it's a very big maybe um, you know I always wonder what happened to that self that was transcended you know if it's just kind of floating around in the world being messy you know and tacky in its relationships and things now I don't uh, the area of personal insight I feel is important understanding what moves us understanding the the patterns that lead us to see in particular ways, that lead us to reject one thing and to cling to another. Understanding our own areas of stickiness, you know, what we hang on to, what we dwell upon, what we linger upon, the areas of fear and doubt, the areas of insecurity, the areas of craving. Because I do feel that understanding really what moves us that that understanding is a basis for change it's a basis for clarity um, we don't bypass ourselves on the way to enlightenment hopefully we will take with us on this path a personal being who really knows how to be clear and conscious and awake and sensitive and compassionate and all those things and for that to happen, personal insight is necessary. Understanding ourselves, the purpose of it, the purpose of understanding ourselves is so that we can live with greater clarity and wisdom. But I would also say that there is a neurotic way of meditating, a meditative neurosis that lingers in the area of personal insight to the exclusion of all else and that does have behind it kind of unconscious desires and obsessions with personal improvement with personal perfection with purity with becoming holy and I think that is something really to be very wary of especially in this because in this path you have such a strong intimacy with your inner world you are so aware of what moves you what you stick to what you cling to that it is very easy to become really rather obsessive about it I am like this I should be different I am like this I need to develop this I am like this I need to become this and I think, you know, the whole area of personal insight, of course, becomes neurotic, is neurotic, when it is a path of becoming. Because a path of becoming is not a path of freedom. Becoming in, in Buddhist language is the path of grasping and moving through grasping from one state of existence, one state of being, one state of consciousness to another.
there is a need for a little Mahayana touch in this practice. You know, especially this practice which is so centered, you know, which revolves so much around really watching and being aware inwardly of what is going on. In, in say, a Mahayana tradition, the way of actually trying to be more skillful with that neurosis that can develop is to ask of yogis to really develop a strong foundation of compassion, of generosity, of vision, of vision, awareness of a more a much larger way of seeing, of interdependence and interconnectedness, which is less to do with self, which is more to do with a grander way of seeing that we happen to embody within ourselves particular characteristics, just as they are embodied in other beings and other sentient beings, but that the whole path is one of liberation, not just for this being, but for all beings. And I think that reflection and that vision does help with the neurosis that can develop. I'm not saying that it's always developed. There are plenty of yogis who <laughs> do this path without any Mahayana perspective, who are absolutely totally non-neurotic. So don't feel that you're in danger, you know, of falling into some grand neurosis at any moment. Not necessarily so. The other emphasis of insight in this path, which is intended also to bring a greater sense of vision, to, um, how should we say, uproot that tendency towards self-obsession, is to emphasize understanding, seeing clearly into the characteristics of existence. Because just as you may suffer, feel pain, feel sorrow, feel fear, so too may I, so too may anyone who is alive, who is conscious, who is awake. That suffering is not a personal possession, it is not the territory of any single being. That suffering is one of the actualities of life. Sorrow unsatisfactoriness, not just suffering, but the unsatisfactoriness of not being awake, of not being aware, of not being conscious. To understand the characteristic of impermanence, because again too, there is not one of us here who is exempt from impermanence. This is the tide of life, the rhythm of life, beginnings and endings, birth and death, as I was speaking about the other day the other evening. And again, too, none of us can state claim to this territory. It has nothing to do with I, it has nothing to do with you. Understanding anatta, or no self, understanding transparency. Again, understanding that this center of self, which we come to believe in so deeply, so too do others live within this, this sense of separation, this sense of duality, which is the expression of ignorance. In Buddhist language, it's ignorance. This is what ignorance is, believing separation to be the truth. So emphasizing not just the area of personal insight, but emphasizing also truth 
those characteristics of existence in relationship to personal insight actually is what is balanced, that is what is clear, that we are seeing not only content, we are also seeing process. We are seeing not only self, we are also seeing interconnectedness and interdependence. To have that balance actually prevents kind of a neurotic type of contraction. It also leads to a greater sense of vision. Now the purpose, and I think we, we need to very much bear this in mind, the purpose of insight is transformation. That is its basic purpose. It's not to make us gurus. It's not to make us teachers. It's not to make us holy. The purpose of insight is transformation. The purpose is to bring to fruition our inner sense of vision of what is possible. And I do think it is so important in meditation to remember that this practice is extending to us on a moment-to-moment level an invitation to explore our own possibilities. This is what is so wonderful about it. This is what is so fresh and so liberating that that invitation is an open invitation. It's not like you are offered the invitation on the first day of a retreat to, to explore your possibilities and if you don't do it, it's withdrawn. It's not like it is constantly offered. This is, to me, what is a great wonder in this practice. You find yourself holding on, you find yourself letting go. Well, what does awareness offer to you? What does awareness offer to you in those moments when you find yourself clinging and grasping? What does awareness offer to you when you find yourself in a moment of fear, a moment of doubt? What does awareness offer to you when you find yourself in a moment of dullness, or a moment of agitation, or confusion, or any of those things we can get stuck in? What awareness, what our own awareness, this is not some generalized, vague sense of awareness, what our own sense of awareness is offering to us? is the invitation to explore our possibilities in that moment. To question, to explore. All right, here is contraction, here is grasping. What is possible? Is it possible to let go? Is it possible in that moment to know the spaciousness that comes with letting go? If we find ourselves fearful or resentful or angry, we are aware of it. We're always aware of it. Awareness doesn't go away. We're always aware. What does our awareness offer to us in that moment? The invitation to explore compassion, to explore opening, to explore forgiveness. We find ourselves in a moment of of fear or, or, or doubt. What is our awareness offering to us? It is offering to us the opportunity to go into that, to look within that, to see that that is the vehicle in itself for opening. That is the vehicle for being awake. You know, I, I really have, personally, have so, um, have very little patience with being able to see anything as an obstacle in this practice. To me, it doesn't matter how fearful, how doubting, how angry, how impatient you might find yourself to be. It is really all much of an invitation. It is not an obstacle. That very feeling, that very contraction, that very reaction, 
So that in itself is your invitation to open, to see, to deepen in humility, in wisdom, in compassion. And I feel it is so important not to look upon uh, compassion or openness or spaciousness or insight as some sort of, you know, future reward uh, that happens through being willing to sit with something forever or, you know, through being willing to suffer for a certain number of hours. These are not rewards. These are the possibilities that lie only in the midst of what we might label as being our opposite. What we might label as being the opposite of compassion, that is the opportunity for compassion. What we might label as being pride, that is the opportunity for humility. What we might label as being contraction, that is the opportunity for letting go. Where else do we learn these? Where else can we possibly learn these lessons? You know, we don't learn these lessons necessarily when everything is wonderful, when everything is calm, when everything is undisturbed. The times when we learn these lessons is is in relationship to what appears to be their opposite. And this is an insight. I mean, this is basically an insight to see that this is possible, to see that this can happen, that we are not endlessly bound to being conditioned by the contents of our consciousness. Basic lesson of meditation. We are not endlessly bound to being conditioned by the contents of our consciousness. This is what ignorance or what limitation is all about, that belief. This is what the belief that meditation is intended to shatter, that we are not bound to being conditioned by the contents of our consciousness. We are not bound to defining ourselves by our judgments, We are not bound to creating beliefs of ourselves or of anyone else by the judgments that have arisen. This is where we find awakening. This is where we find freedom. This is where we find openness. The willingness just to go right into what we are experiencing this moment. This is what I call a kind of tantric vipassana. It is not the path of future rewards. It is the path of present awakening. This is why I think it is so important to bear in mind that insight is intended to transform inwardly and outwardly. It is intended to bring about the end of pain, the end of conflict, the end of bondage, the end of suffering. Not in some future life, not in some future retreat, but to look at the possibilities of that ending in the moment of our experience. To understand ourselves deeply is to accept ourselves, is to experience the possibilities of transformation to understand the characteristics of existence brings about a dramatic change in how we hold ourselves, in how we embrace our own experience, 
in how we embrace the world around us. Understanding brings about an end of defensiveness and aggression, an end of fear and clinging. And I do think in those moments when we explore our own possibilities, when we actually really trust in our freedom to do that, then we do, I think, begin to have a, a glimpse of the profound freedom that is offered to us when we are no longer conditioned by the content of our consciousness, by the impressions that are made upon us. When we can embrace them, but when our awareness is embracing them, when we are established inwardly in seeing and not in objects, the other aspect of insight <coughs> which this path is actually concerned with is what may be referred to as mystical or liberating insight. And I think it is, it is very important to be quite, um, quite straightforward about this, you know. These stories you've heard of Grand Awakening, the books that we read about liberation, you know, the things we hear at times are sort of whispered about, that there is something such as freedom. So not just stories. This path is about liberation. It is about freedom. It is about what we might call a mystical understanding or awakening to what is true. What our sense doors tell us, what our eyes tell us, and what our conditioning tells us is that we live in a world of a multitude of separate selves that are all separate from each other, all drifting, a drifting world of objects that are all separate from each other. This is what our sense doors, our conditioning, our minds and our judgments constantly tell us that this world of illusion is what is true. Mystics in every tradition do not dismiss the world. They do not say that this is not, this is not apparent, that this doesn't have an existence. Certainly there is existence. And everything that we see around us is a unique and perfect expression of truth not to be dismissed, to be deeply appreciated, deeply open to, just as we are, a perfect expression of suchness. And part of this practice certainly is to cultivate a quality of receptivity and openness and willingness to learn and inquiry, which helps us not to take so seriously that with the world of appearances, that which not to take so seriously, that which appears to be so solid and so definite to our senses, not anything, not our thoughts, not our feelings, not the trees, not the bushes, not the flowers, not the people, not our bodies, not our minds, not our sense of self. This is what this whole practice encourages us to be receptive enough to listen, to be still enough to accommodate, to be aware, to be open enough 
to awaken. Now, some, you know, there are many people, of course, who come on this path and they've got a different program in mind. You know, they've got a really a different agenda of this practice. You know, they know very clearly, you know, I want to be calmer in my work, I want to fight less with my partner, you know, I want to sort of do better in the world, I want to trust myself more. They have a whole other agenda, which is fine. But I do feel it is absolutely essential to understand that the heart of this path, the absolute essence of this path, is about awakening to what is true. And that this is not just the territory of people who lived in the past. It's not just the territory of those who appear to us to be saintly. It is what is true. It is what is available to everyone stops to listen, to inquire, to open, to be willing to learn. It is not to say in any way that what we do here is somehow a forerunner to enlightenment. You know, that first we work out um, our lesser self so that we have a better self. It's not to say that what we do here is somehow some prerequisite liberation. It is not. It is not. It is not to say that what we do here is preliminary, you know, or is somehow a progressive development that will take us towards liberation. I mean, that is one of the great paradoxes of this path, is that there, there is actually no progression on one level, because if if what is true is ever present, if it's not bound to time, if it is not bound to place, and it's also got nothing to do with the path. But it is also true that the path actually awakens us to being present, teaches us the wisdom of stillness, teaches us the depth of openness, teaches us the wisdom of, of looking carefully and with great sensitivity. And there is a certain amount of truth in saying that that those qualities of stillness and silence and openness that are born of this practice incredibly receptive lend themselves to deep and to profound insight. The process of meditation is one way of entering the path of insight. It is not the owner of insight. It is not the only way to develop insight. But the path of meditation is one way of entering the path of insight in a very simple, a very fundamental way. That what we are actually doing in the practice is cultivating an environment inwardly which lends itself to insight. In a certain way of seeing, it could be said that what we are learning to do in this practice is to get out of the way. That even though we are doing, yes, we are doing, we are watching, we are observing, we are cultivating, I think it does dawn on us that a lot of what we are doing is actually learning to get out of the way, not to be so directing, so much in charge, so much in command, but instead to cultivate that receptivity that is simply present. 
the cultivation environment inwardly of great intimacy where we meet ourselves and knowing in that meeting of ourselves of course we meet all of life in every thought, in every feeling, in every sensation, in every mind state we meet all of life we're meeting everybody's, else's mind, body, dynamic within that uh, the intimacy of that inner relationship gives us a microcosmic view of all life it is a wonderful opportunity for seeing and is to know that in that intimacy we are not just coming closer to ourselves and cultivating that environment of stillness and sensitivity inwardly we are coming closer to ourselves but we are also coming closer to all of life and coming closer more clearly connected to understanding to deepening in insight Well, and say I haven't actually started my talk. Yet. <laughs> I haven't actually started. <laughs> that was just the introduction to tonight's talk. <laughs> but the introduction got a little carried away. So, so <laughs> very funny. So actually, I'm going to need to continue <laughs> on another night, if that's all right with you. I guess I don't know how long I can expect you to sit there and listen. And you've got the introduction, I have the talk later. <laughs> if we have a couple of minutes quieter together, then we'll have a walk. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.